Welcome to the Avenue Community Church's podcast. We are a family of Christ followers seeking shalom in Memphis. We pray that you are encouraged by today's message. And as you listen, may the word of God shape you to be more like him. Uh, We'll be in Philippians 2. You can open up your Bible. And um, I just want to ask you to think about what is your greatest problem? (laughs) What's your biggest problem? That's kind of the backdrop. Um, If you know Jerry Seinfeld, he said that uh, people would rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy at the funeral because number one, fear in public was public speaking, and number two was death, (laughs) which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But none of us really want to be ashamed or to be broken publicly. None of us want um, to be made fun of. And all of this really stems from, I would say, the answer to what's your greatest problem. I'll just stick to myself. What's my greatest problem? Pride. Uh, One theologian said that pride has always been the gateway to hell. It's what caused uh, Lucifer to become the devil. I will ascend and be like the Most High. It's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. They rebelled, and in pride they took what didn't belong to them. And so if that's our greatest problem, I would suggest to you tonight, even, so if you're not a believer and you're here tonight, we're really pumped you're here, we're glad you're here, and we'd love for you to keep investigating and talking through and thinking about uh, what we're talking about. But um, I want you to know that even on the inside, (laughs) even as Christians, still our greatest problem is pride. And so what are we going to do about it? That's what we're going to talk about tonight. What are we going to do about it? It's kind of like Boston, uh, the Celtics with Steph. they got to figure it out. Now, I, I don't think they are. But they're going to have a game plan around Steph. They're going to put 27 people on him, okay? Because they know that's their greatest problem if they're, going to, if they're going to win. And for us, our greatest problem is pride. And so, thankfully, we have a Savior who has dealt with it and knows what to do, and he's going to help us. So let's pray as we open God's Word, and let's get into it. Father in heaven, we pause now just to say um, none of this makes any sense apart from your goodness, apart from your condescension, apart from you, Lord Jesus, coming in the flesh and taking all that stood against us and nailing it to the cross and being raised from the dead and promising to come back. None of this would make sense apart from that reality, that you were at work, that you were alive, that you were good, that you were building your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So Lord Jesus, we ask that your kingdom would come and our hearts in this service tonight, just like it is in heaven, so that Jesus, you would be exalted. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. So Philippians chapter 2. Paul is talking to the church at Philippi, and he has already said, hey, every time I think about y'all, I thank thank God, every time I remember you. And he's already told them that uh, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He's told them things like, hey, I'm in jail, but it's, the gospel's still going forward. Like God's even using this crazy stuff to advance the gospel. He says for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, he's basically saying, look, I don't, I don't care if I go to be with Jesus right now or not. Uh, there's part of me that wants to because that's better, but I already know God's revealed it to me that I'm going to stay and work for your edification to build you up. So in chapter 2, he has just told them that you're going to suffer. <laughs> Friends, you're going to suffer Look at verse 29. It's been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's not really what you want to hear, is it? Did you wake up this morning saying, I get to suffer for Jesus? 
Anybody say that? Well, that's what he's writing to the church of Philippi. And then he says, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and here now that I still have. So here's what Paul wants the church of Philippi to know. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God, it stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. So if we have time, I might read uh, the message. I know that's probably a familiar passage to you if you've hung out in church a good bit. Tonight, I want us to talk about or consider humility, but I want us to consider it um, maybe in a way that we don't normally think about it. So we could all, uh, if, we're, if we're Christians tonight, we, we would all say, yes, like part of getting in means we're so bad that Jesus had to die for us. You know, like, you know, you, you got to be bad to get in the church or, you know, the mafia or, you know, to join a gang. You got to do, do something bad to get in, right? The church is a hospital for sinners, right? We have to be bad enough that Jesus would have to die for our sin, our mess, right? And so um, we're not talking about, yes, our sin humbles us, contrition or conviction of sin. We say, oh, woe is me, I'm a worm, I'm a sin. Like, that's not what we're talking about tonight. Your sin and my sin, it should humble us, absolutely. We should say, like, I am broken, I'm a mess, I need Jesus. But one author put it this way, if, if um, humility is ever going to be our joy and our delight, then we have to see it apart from sin. Because guess what? Jesus was without sin, totally. Hebrews tells us that he was made like us in every way, tempted as we are yet without sin. And yet Jesus is full of humility. I mean, it's oozing out of him. He says that, you know, his heart, he is gentle and lowly. And we see that in his life, both in word and in deed. And so I want you to think about Humility tonight as participation in the life of Jesus. Uh, because he, <laughs> he is the one, he's the only way that we're going to find humility. We don't run after humility, we run after Jesus and we find humility. So there's three different definitions I have here that I wrote down. And all of these will, will come out from our passage. But humility is an emptying of, of ourselves and a filling of God. Kind of like an empty vessel, right, that is filled with the presence of God. Paul writes about that. Uh, humility is having a, a mind and a heart full of others, uh, which is a, a great little book Tim Keller wrote, uh, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Uh, he defines humility this way, not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Say that one more time. Not thinking less of yourself, like I'm so horrible, uh, which can be false humility a lot of times, but not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. So here's where we're going. We're going to count others 
We're going to see that in this passage. Paul's going to say, count others by not counting yourself. Then we're going to count on Jesus. And then we're going to see what all this counting looks like, what it adds up to. So if you have your Bible, you can look at verses 1 through 4. Counting others and not counting yourself. This is what we see Jesus doing. If you've ever played sports, you know what makes a great teammate. Um, For me, uh, you know, it was somebody who would put the needs of the team ahead of their own stat line, right? Um, Ahead of their own glory, as we say. They would say, coach, wherever you need me, put me. They would say, I'll do whatever you need me to do, no matter what. Um, They're going to try and practice. They're going to try in the game. They're going to show up, right? And so when I think about... um, Looking back at my, my wonderful college career, being a quarterback, I, I'm laughing because nobody's ever heard of Bellhaven, and uh, I got hit a lot. Um, but I used to love seeing my offensive linemen and my running backs throw themselves in the way of a blitzing linebacker. Like, I might not have seen it in the moment, but then when we go back and we watch the tape, coach would rewind it, and we'd watch it, and everybody would go, ooh, and then we'd rewind it and do it again. And it was the joy and glory of that, like, and it was my joy and glory, too. I was like, bro, thank you for bearing my burden, literally. Like, you fulfilled the law of Christ. You bared my burden right there, bro. And I would love to see these guys do that, right? Now, that's just a silly game. But when you, when you, when you get people on a common mission, and, and they work together, and they bleed together, and they sacrifice together, you start to get a shadow, a glimpse of what the church of Jesus Christ is all about. That's what Paul is trying to say here. Paul is saying that you were to have the same mind, the same goal, the same love. And it's yours in Christ Jesus. Paul is drawing out his union with Christ. I mean, when you read Paul, his favorite definition is in. It's in Christ. He's a preposition. He's going to say in Christ hundreds of times. He wants you to know that your union with other people stems from your union with Christ. And so he's going to write so passionately to the Corinthian church, hey, Christ is not divided. Y'all are over here arguing you know, I follow Paul, I follow Peter, I follow Apollos. And he's saying, stop it. We all follow Jesus. Like, it doesn't matter who waters and who plants. It matters that God gives the increase. Jesus has to practically be a bigger deal than anything if we're going to work together on mission and be a team here. We're going to be good teammates, good, good parts of the body. And so Paul wants them to know that their union with Christ is the baseline for how they're going to work toward humility how God is going to work humility in them. Then he goes deeper. So so verse 2, same mind, same love. Verse 3, in humility we are to count others as more significant or more important. You could say before or above. So the word here is is actually pretty wild. Um, In Greek, you could translate it judge. Now we already know that Jesus tells us not to judge others. The same measure we judge others, it'll be measured back to us. Like we're not to be, like that's, one of the greatest loss of witnesses for the church is when we're judgy. We judge other people, right? We expect, by the way, we expect sinners to act like sinners, right? I mean, so, so we're, we're to be very careful, like, not to be judgy, judgmental towards others. God is judged, not me. You know, Tupac taught us a lot about that. So here's the point. He actually tells you to judge others. Everybody say, as long as you judge them more significant than yourself. Here, Paul's saying you are to judge others as more significant. You are to judge others 
as being so worth the blood of Jesus that he wants to be with them forever that you're going to get off your butt and do something for them. I mean, he's saying that you're to judge them, count them, by not counting yourself, but by counting them more significant, ahead. Ooh, look, I don't wake up in the morning thinking to myself, I'm going to count everybody I see today ahead of me because I'm swerving in and out of traffic, you know. No, you go first, right? This is not natural for us. However, we can get there (laughs) by God's grace. You see, when Jesus said to humble yourself like a child, I don't know if you've been to children's birthday parties, but um, the children, heck, I'm a grown-up and I don't do this, but the children are not looking to give their friends a bigger piece of cake or give them ice cream that's more than they got, right? I don't do that. Not picking on the kids in here, right? You're just like me. Uh, when Jesus told the, his disciples to humble, humble themselves like a child, what he was saying was, don't base your importance on your status. Children aren't like uh, elected president and they don't run Fortune 500 companies. They're, they're not CEOs because they're totally dependent on their, children, on their parents for survival. Right? Kids are totally dependent. Like My kids can't get in the car and go to Kroger. <laughs> they can barely drive a golf cart. They, they are totally dependent on their mommy and their daddy, mostly their mommy, for their survival. They are totally dependent, right? And Jesus is saying, you too, my friends, are totally dependent on your heavenly father. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Don't get it twisted. You can't do anything apart from me. You are to take a status of totally dependent. So friends, for us to have the same mind and same love, for us to count others ahead of ourselves, we've got to see that we have to be free from people in order to be free for people. Does that make sense? So I just want everybody to like me. I'm an approval addict. I just want everybody to vote for me. And I'm not running for anything. I just still need your vote. Um, And so, but part of me, like, growing in my relationship with Jesus is, hey, it's okay if you don't like me. Jesus does. (laughs) You know, it really is okay if other people think that, that Jesus got the raw end of the deal when it comes to me. But Jesus doesn't feel that way. So you know what? I'm okay. I, I, at the end of the day, I really am okay. Because Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. And if I am free from people, then I can actually be present and show up for people. Right? And so this is your union with Jesus we're talking about. That's all. Like, when I get to heaven and hang out with Paul, I'm going to have a, a brew with Paul, and Paul's going to tell me all about union with Jesus. That's all he's going to talk about. I'm convinced of it. He's going to talk about union with Jesus. That's what he wants you to know. Now, I was told a long time ago the quickest way to mental health is to get outside your own head and to think about somebody else, to, enter, to walk a mile in somebody else's shoes or to think about somebody else or to serve somebody else. And sometimes we might think, man, if I could just grow spiritually, if I could just maybe do some boot camp for Christianity, then I could come back and I could serve other people. If I could just grow spiritually, then, then, I, then, then I could serve others. But I want you to know that this is actually one of the ways you grow as a Christian. This is one of the greatest tools and resources that God gives you to actually grow in your faith. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. Stop bothering whether you love someone or not and just act like you do. And what you will find is that in loving them, your affections will follow. He's saying get off your butt and do something and love somebody, whether you feel like it or not. And what you'll find is you'll love them. 
So Paul wants us not to count ourselves. He wants us to count others. Jesus did this perfectly. And what you get in 5, chapter uh, 2, verses 5 through 8, is, it's been called the Christ hymn. You, you kind of have this like um, a beautiful summary of the gospel. But I'm just going to read it again because it's so good. But he says, have this mind in you, which was yours in Christ Jesus. Like, this belongs to us in Christ. Because of your union with Jesus, like, he signed a blank check, y'all. He didn't just pay for your sin. He did. He paid your debt. But then he gave you his righteousness, which means you have his bank account. He signed his name on it. So this is yours in Christ. You have access to this. Don't live like a beggar. You're filthy rich in Jesus, okay? You have this. It's yours which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto, but he emptied himself, he poured it out by taking the form of a servant or a slave, the lowest spot, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, Jesus is in the very form of God. Hebrews says he is the exact imprint of the Father. If you go back to John, John says he was in the beginning with God and he was God. Jesus is equal in power, substance, and glory with the Father. But you know what? He's fully human. And in his human nature, you know what he says? I'm good. I'm going to be totally dependent on my Father. I'm going to, lay my, I'm going to pour myself out. Here's the point. Jesus has the highest position and he fights to take the lowest. Jesus has access, has access to all the rights and wealth and honor and glory. He has access to it because it's his. But he forgoes it. He lays it down and he comes in humility and is born in a stable. <laughs> Y'all, Jesus, the Lamb of God, couldn't afford a lamb. When he went to the temple... As a little bitty baby, they presented him. You know what they killed? They killed two little birds because that was what they could afford. The Lamb of God couldn't afford a lamb. Jesus, who owned the world, didn't own a home. Jesus, the light of the world, is going to squint at the sun he made. And when the sun goes down, Jesus is going to go down because he's tired. You see the humility of Jesus? He fought sin and death and all the powers of darkness, and he didn't ride in on a stallion. He, he borrowed a freaking donkey. And his feet were probably touching the ground because it was a baby donkey. It was like Shrek. And it was hilarious. It really was. It was hilarious. Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, is wearing a crown of thorns and nothing else on a cross. Jesus uses his position and his privilege to serve and save others, to empower them, to welcome them into his family. And here I am jockeying for attention. <laughs> here I am trying to get ahead and get people to vote for me. <laughs> and Jesus is placing a borrowed tomb. So friends, what I want you to see is how silly it is that greatness is laying, pouring himself out and laying himself down for you. And he says anybody can be great. Greatness in the kingdom is about service. It's not about status. It's about serving your brother or your sister. This is who Jesus is, y'all. 
This is what he has come to do. So I have to ask you, when you think about your vocation, your calling in life as a follower of Jesus, how much time is spent? I'm, I'm just, this is convicting for me. I'm not playing the Holy Spirit. I'm not trying to get on to you. I'm just asking a question. How much time is spent thinking about what you pour out and what you give up for the sake of others? Because me, I'm thinking about kind of myself, me, myself, and I very often. This is what's going to lead Paul to tell you, hey, don't put any confidence in the flesh, your position, your status, or your performance. All that is rubbish compared to knowing Jesus. You have to be taken by his humility. If you don't see the humility of Jesus, you will not grow in humility. If you don't see the humility of Jesus as a living force by the power of the Spirit and participation in the risen life of Jesus now, then you will not grow in humility, and neither will I. So where do we find true humility? Where do we have access to it? It's Paul saying, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. And guess what? Jesus was the most humble person who ever lived. He was. And if you believe that Jesus is being formed in you, that you're being reformed and reshaped into the image of his beloved son, then guess what's going to happen? Humility is going to come out of you. It just is. And you might not feel like it. But you can ask for it, and Jesus loves to answer that. Like The first step in becoming wise is saying, I'm not super wise, but I'm trying to surround myself by, with some wise friends. The same is true with humility. Authors and people a lot smarter than me would say, if you want to grow in humility, admit you're not, and hang around people who you think are. And I just got to tell you, I, I would highly encourage your summer reading to buy this book. Um, it's Henry Nowen's Reaching Out, The Three Movements of the Spiritual Life. He talks about moving from, from loneliness to solitude. Then he talks about from hostility to hospitality. Then he talks about uh, from illusion to prayer. These are the three movements of spiritual life. I don't have time to unpack it all tonight. What I want to tell you is this. I want you to read it. That's your homework. But here, here's what he's saying. You need to be alone. Your, your loneliness needs to force you to run to Jesus and just be alone with Jesus and know you're not alone, Right? You can, you can be in solitude. Solitude is loneliness transformed into something good. Solitude is a good thing. If you, ha- if you can't be alone with, with yourself and with God, then you ain't got nothing to bring to the table for your brother or sister, okay? You're just going to regurgitate what you hear other people saying, and you're not going to be authentically yourself. So you need to be alone with Jesus, have some solitude, alone with Jesus, and then your hostility to the world and others will turn into hospitality, which means welcome, because you see yourself. You, you know yourself as an enemy, as a traitor, as a sinner, as somebody who needs to participate in the life of Jesus now, growing in humility, and it will turn your hostility into hospitality where you welcome others. And then it will turn all your illusions and thinking this life is for you and building your own kingdom into prayer, saying, God, build your kingdom. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Not mine. So counting on Jesus, what Paul wants you to see, if you're going to uh, not count yourself, and count on others, then the baseline of that is you got to count on Jesus. Because you can't, all this counting, you, you literally cannot go out and leave today and be like, I'm going to grow in humility, and you're going to do it on your own. Uh, that would be a wonderful case study in failure. Um, and you would run over people. Your hospitality, you'd be the worst host in the world. People would not be able to leave your house. And you would be forcing them to do what you want to do. You would not be present for people because you would be bound to them. What, what I'm trying to say is this. 
if you're going to count on Jesus, then you, you're, going to count, you're going to take him at his word. And at least four times Jesus said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And by the way, Jesus is the only one who ever perfectly lived his sermons. Jesus was always humbling himself, and he has the highest name above every name. You and I, the, the question is not will people be humbled. The question is when, where, how, and will there be joy or will there be sorrow? We will all be humbled. Might as well go ahead and ask for it now. As I said, Jesus was the most humble person who ever lived. Let me just let me point you to one more thing, and then we'll land this plane. Um, Paul Miller is a great author. He talks about Jesus being the most humble person, which means that Jesus was the most dependent person who ever lived. Now, if a 30-year-old man said, I only do what I see my father doing, PT, we'd probably be like, bro, you need to, probably need to come hang out with us and not your dad. Right? Probably need to break away from your dad for a minute. There might be a little enmeshment, I don't know, clinical terms for all that, but we, you, know, you need to hang out with some other people. But listen to what Jesus says. The son can do nothing by himself, John 5. By myself, I can do nothing. I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me, John 5.30. I have not come to do my own will, John 6. John 7, I am not here on my own. I do nothing on my own, John 8. I have not come on my own. I am not seeking glory for myself, John 8. The words I say are not just my own. These words uh, you hear are not my own, John 14. Ultimately, Jesus is going to say, not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus is totally dependent on his Father. That's what Paul Miller is saying. Jesus, the most humble person in the world, is the most dependent person who ever lived. He was totally dependent on his Father. This is what it means when he pours himself out. This absolute submission and dependence on his Father. Jesus humbled himself before the Father, so guess what? He was able to humble himself before his neighbor. (laughs) And Jesus ain't got no reason to be humble. He made everything. He sustains everything. He is remaking everything. And he is the greatest servant of us all. Jesus humbled himself before his father. He was able to humble himself before his neighbor. You know, the four Gospels, 89 chapters in the Bible, only one place Jesus actually mentions his own heart. And he says, come, learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus is saying to you, I'm the most accessible human. Like, people can't get to Jesus because they think he's on the top shelf. Jesus is on the bottom shelf. He is the most accessible human who's ever lived. No one's ever been more approachable. And he's more concerned about your burden than you are. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So if you labor, if you're trying to work your life into working and keep the cheese on the cracker, if you're working so hard to control your life, Jesus is saying, stop, because you can't. Come to me, and I'll give you rest. Or if you're heavy laden, which means like you can't take another dead gum step, because you're, you're tired of trying to control your life, and you can't. He says, come to me, and I'll give you rest. What I I want you to know tonight is Jesus is more concerned with your rest and your humility than you are. And he loves you enough to secure it for you. Like he's done everything necessary. He's done everything necessary for you to have it. And my God shall supply all all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. What you need to understand, what I need to understand is, 
that I already have access to all the humility I will ever need. I just don't act like it and I don't believe it. I believe I got to go win it, attain it, read another book, try to figure it out. But let me tell you what humility actually looks like for a couple seconds. What does all this counting add up to? What does it look like? Let me just give you a couple of silly examples um, that might help you. Here's the thing. For us to get to this point, what it might look like is, is simply this. Jesus has already counted you. Like Jesus literally already counted you. And so you don't have to count yourself. You can count on others. Um, but what this might look like is humility might look like in us of people who are so dependent for God to move. Like, y'all know this ain't a perfect church because I'm up in here. <laughs> um, but we could be the most dependent church around these parts because we could say, Lord Jesus, you got to work. you got to show up or we labor in vain. Right? That's what it might look like. Um, it might look like us spending more time in prayer personally and collectively because we know that that's our vocation. That's our calling as Christians. That is the work. <laughs> Prayer is the work. There is no greater work for the Christian than calling out, calling on the one who does all things. It might also look like something like this, a learned ignorance. I love this. Y'all know uh, Abraham, God said, Abraham, get up and leave and go to a land that I'm going to show you. And if you ask that, I I, I can't wait to get to heaven and hang out with Abraham. I'm going to be like, Abraham, we're going to be eating curry. I can already figure it out. We're going to be having a good time. And he's going to say, I'm going to say, Abraham, Abe, bro, what was it like? What were you doing when God said leave and you just left? What was that like? I mean, did you know what you were doing? And he's like, he, he, he would say this. I believe it. He would say, I knew exactly what I was doing. I was following the voice. I was following God. I was doing exactly what he told me to do, right? Do you know Hebrews 11 says Abraham had no idea where he was going? That's a blessed humility of ignorance, a learned ignorance, what I mean is this. How many of you can plan out exactly what's going to happen tomorrow? Anybody? I didn't see any hands. Whew, that's good. All right. Here's the point. I read this dude. He's a, he's a college uh, pr- uh, president. He wrote a book on, on opportunity leadership. He says, y'all, we got to become sailboats who depend on the wind of God and not powerboats. A powerboat might be kind of cool and, and doesn't matter where the wind's blowing, You can fill it up with gas and go wherever you want. But what's going to outlast is the wind every day. That powerboat's going to break down at some point, but that sailboat's going to keep going. And if the wind ain't blowing, guess what? You wait on the Lord. You wait for the wind of God, and then it blows. And so he's talking about, in your planning and my planning, what if we didn't destination plan? We just said, Lord, we are ready to roll in whatever direction you see fit, and we're going to make sure our sailboat's ready for the wind of God to blow. That's a learned ignorance of like, I don't know where I'm going. I just know I'm following Jesus, right? I, I don't know, like, I'm not like that a whole lot. And I don't know enough people in the world like that. And I need, I need to be around people like that because there's more life and joy and freedom there and more dependence on the Lord there than there is, hey, I'm gonna control this thing and I'm gonna take it with me. I could keep going as y'all can tell, but I'm gonna shut it down. All of this is for God's sake and for the sake of his people so that grace extends to more and more people so that it may increase in thanksgiving to the glory of God. What we're saying is this. When we have been touched by Jesus who meets us in our deepest pain, who is, 
who is abandoned on the cross. The place where God is abandoned and God seems absent is the place where God touches all of your brokenness and mine. It's, it's the place where he's most present. It's this blessed mystery of, of God being absent and present in the same moment, in the same time, and him being so for you, so for you, that you ought not question it ever, but we do. And he's even got patience and humility for that. He knows you're going to question it. And what he wants you to do is to wake up and depend on him. And he wants you to eat lunch and depend on him. And he wants you to go to bed and depend on him. And he wants you to, he, he wants you to ask for help. And he wants to see your brother and your sister doing the same thing. And he wants to see us leading in vulnerability and humility, not out of our, like, toolkit. <laughs> Lord Jesus, would you please bless me and us so that we would so depend upon